Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. Words. Words have fixed meanings. Or do they? Uh, One could argue that they change all the time, that sometimes they are used cynically by people who want the language to change in a way that benefits them. Certainly uh, operatives, if that's the right word, like Frank Luntz on the Republican side and the scholar George Lakoff on the Democratic side started to see words as things that could be weaponized, which is also, of course, a very judgmental kind of word, but words words that could be politically weaponized to be beneficial to certain political causes. Uh, There's also ways in which words change because of the technology that we use. Believe it or not, when people started using the telegraph, they started using the words differently. So guess what the Internet did? We have so many things to tell you about in the world of words coming up on the other side of the proverbial this. Academia vestibule Pina colada managua Velcro escargot malarkey Pacadillo glockenspiel Tanto caledonia Bingo pink pneumonia Hokey pokey hoi polloi Carbuncle fungus osmosis, tutu Taiwan halitosis, pickles ectoparasite. Messerschmitt macaroon malamute mezzanine vehicle, ventricle varsity vaseline, kickapoo kangaroo cold sac erie canal. Yes, that is the genius, Haywood Banks. And it's a sign that we're going to do a show about words. Because, in fact, we're going to do a show about words uh, and how they get used, how they get uh, turned around, warped, changed, mutated, revived. I I don't know. I'm searching for words now at this point, and I would be better off probably introducing our guests. So for the first two segments, we'll be visiting with a frequent guest on this show. Peter Sokolowski is editor-at-large at at Merriam-Webster, public radio jazz host extraordinaire at New England Public Media, and co-host of the Word Matters podcast. Also with us, Corey Stamper, a lexicographer and author of Word by Word, The Secret Life of Dictionaries. So, first of all, welcome to both of you. Uh, And Peter, you know, I mean, dictionaries used to sort of of just sit between covers. They were on pages. They sat between covers. They didn't change much until somebody put out a new edition. But, you know, I mean, every day is a busy day at Merriam-Webster, right? We know what people are looking up right now. For some reason, they've been looking up the word gaff all day. I've been watching, uh, and Merriam-Webster has on their site this look-up chart that refreshes, I don't know, every 30 seconds or something. But gaff is hung in there. Gaff, delve, co, dense, 
BONY, in all caps, uh, inhabited neurasthenia, which also has had a good day so far, awe, democracy, and karma uh, are all being looked up a lot. So, Peter, first of all, do you always know why people are looking, some, like, do you know why people are looking up GAF today? I can't figure it out. Absolutely not. I mean, I always say we're good at reading data. We're not good at reading minds. And sometimes those words being looked up are obvious. They're from, you know, a pandemic, for example, or from an insurrection. Uh, and we can follow the vocabulary right to the news or, for example, to the title of a movie um, uh, like uh, in, uh, Inception was a word that people looked up a lot when that movie came out. Um, sometimes gaff uh, uh, spikes when there's a public error of one kind. I remember when the Oscar was given to the wrong film. <laughs> uh, as you might recall, uh, that the word gaff is a favorite for headline writers, um, and it became a word that spiked in our data. So you never really know. And another interesting point is that it's not always a difficult vocabulary word that's being looked up. Sometimes they're quite common words. When Princess Diana died, one of the top lookups was the word princess. Right. Uh, and but usually, well, who knows whether it's usually or not. I should say one interesting thing about GAF is among reporters anyway, the most famous definition of GAF is not one that's found in any dictionary, to the best of my knowledge. But it's the one that a, another journalist, Michael Kinsley, uh, made like, I don't know, 30, 40 years ago. He said he defined GAF as an instance when a politician uh, by mistake tells the truth. Um, <laughs> Which, you know, is that sort of the gaff is the kind of thing that is blurted out. But, Corey, and this is something that you've written a lot about. There is a sense, I think, in the world of politics and public life, kind of win the battle of the word and you win a lot of other battles, right? If you can get everybody to refer to part of the Affordable Care Act as death panels, mm -hmm. um, you've effectively you know, made an inroad uh, that means more than just terminology. Absolutely. If the ideas that we use language to describe are really what we're trying to spread, and language is catchy, it's viral by nature. And so if you can take a word or you can get a word trending or you can attach an idea to a word or divorce an idea from a word, <laughs> that's really how we end up getting ideas spread. That's how different ways of, of I wouldn't say manipulating information, but sometimes manipulating information or what kind of information reaches people happens. So absolutely, the war of the word is is sort of always has been, honestly, one of the main ways that we uh, fight for dominance in the marketplace of ideas. Yeah, it's sort of funny the way that what's happening today is kind of what happens all the time. I was teaching a, a political science journalism class uh, a seminar this spring, and I kind of had a free parking space. Uh, one of the one of the uh, one of the class meetings, I hadn't really decided what I wanted to do, and we all talked about what we wanted to do. And we decided we would talk about words in kind of the way that the three of us are talking about it right now. And then we thought, oh, what a great choice because that week, you know, genocide was being fervently debated in connection with Ukraine and and, and grooming and gaslighting. There's just the just the G's genocide, grooming, <laughs> right. and gaslighting. I mean, it would seem like it was a really big week in words. But that's probably wrong. It's probably always a really big week in words. We're just always arguing about something else. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think one of the things that's interesting about uh, the way that modern discourse around words happens is it's happening in real time. You know, 100 years ago, this kind of discourse happened in newspapers or, you know, might have happened on 
radio, but rarely. And, and now it's happening, you know, on broadcast TV, on social media, on the internet. You can see public editors at different, uh, you know, newspapers, magazines issuing statements about why we're calling it this and not the other word or why we're not using this word versus the other word. And so, yeah, I mean, this has always happened and it's happening all around us, whether we're paying attention to it or not. I just think we've had a lot of big things happen in the last few years. So we're paying more attention to those sorts of things. Although, yeah, that whole question of why use that word instead of another word. I mean, in, in public radio, and this goes back a few years now, there was quite a brouhaha about the word torture because, in fact, public radio as a matter of style had decided not to refer to waterboarding as torture. Uh, and, and people got, I mean, it was at that point, uh, you know, there was, I think Alicia Shepard was the ombuds person, but, you know, there was like a big fight about that. And I remember Bob Garfield in particular from on the media getting furious saying, why in the world wouldn't we call that torture? But Corey, that's another example of however that battle goes, it does affect probably perception. Absolutely. And, you know, I think perception also affects that battle. Honestly, I think, I mean, one thing I like to do is I like to collect headlines that use the, the word lie, as in uh, a falsehood, because in journalistic practice, they tell you, don't call something a lie unless you can prove intent to deceive. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that's in, in theory, that's a lovely thing to say, you know, so you see a whole lot of misleading statement or you see you know occasionally you see falsehood which is like eh, that's really a lie just call it a <laughs> lie but but this is a way that we get around well we don't know what the intention of the speaker was and, and one thing i've seen just as i'm tracking these sorts of shifts in language particularly over the last six seven years is that sometimes people are just like look call it a lie it's clearly meant to deceive why are you not calling it a lie and and some news outlets have kind of done it. I've found a couple of headlines in the Washington Post or the New York Times where lie is used, where previously falsehood, misleading statement, uh, that sort of thing would have been used. So, so, you know, language is discourse, which means it's exchange of ideas and communication. So even these standards that journalistic outlets set for themselves regarding the uses of certain words those should be affected and part of a conversation with the broader public's perception of what's happening right. in general. I yeah. mean, Trump was a big problem because he was so reckless and so rhetorically untethered that it wasn't always possible to know whether he was intentionally lying or whether he just didn't know that what he was saying was not true. <laughs> right. uh, and 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 so assigning motive was a problem there. I I'd also you sometimes notice that the media journal, the journalistic profession will make a almost collective decision, not like they have a meeting or anything for for example for a long time during the to put it charitably confusion over the results of the 2020 election the word baseless became incredibly <laughs> you, <laughs> right. you, baseless rather than say big lie which is now kind of taken or baseless was a big thing but peter sokolowski let's sort of walk them through uh, something that's you know that's fairly recent and that is the word grooming uh, wow. so i'm going to first of all play a little clip by Fox News host 
and soul-eating Dementor, Laura Ingram. Uh, and she is talking about this. She sees grooming everywhere she looks. This is a 2 cat. This has been my first year in preschool with a class of my own, teaching alongside another queer neurodivergent educator. And we have been rocking our two's class. We've been talking about gender and skin color and consent and empathy and our bodies and autonomy. It's been fabulous. Oh my God. When did our public schools, any schools, become what are essentially grooming centers for gender identity radicals? As a mom, I think it's appalling, it's frightening, it's disgusting, it's despicable. It's delightful. Peter, this the this term grooming. I mean, it's sort of an interesting word too. Obviously, it's something that uh, my dog uh, experiences every three or four months. There, but I, I think this idea of grooming may have started in the same area of there's an idiom, for example, to groom one's successor, which means you know you have somebody else who's working with you. You start preparing that person for a transition, and so it it does have that history. And, and maybe you can pick up the story from there. Yeah, I mean, to, to prepare is kind of a synonym, right? To, yeah. to uh, we say to get into readiness for a specific objective in Merriam-Webster's dictionary. But the big Oxford English Dictionary does have this precise meaning. Um, they say of a pedophile to befriend or influence a child, now especially via the internet, uh, in preparation for future sexual abuse. So crystal clear and a very peculiar usage and one that is to be kind of honestly it's new to me it's it's only because of these recent news stories um that i've heard about it we trace it back uh till the to the mid-1980s um so it's been around it's been out there and what we find is that um the language of politics uh is going in the same direction as so many of the other sort of concerns of the culture which is identity you know, terms of identity. And it's clear that um, that's what this is about. It's attacking, um, you know, one category of person or accusing them of one type of behavior. Um, You know, they're certainly not talking about policy here. They're not talking about positions or campaign finance. Um, They're going after individuals and it's about identity. So it's kind of like calling people names. And it turns out that, you know, maybe the age of social media has been a regression for all of us and it's sticks and stones all over again. Although, okay, I'm going to push back against that a little tiny bit. And Peter and I have been having conversations like this, I think, for decades at this point. (laughs) He is really, I think it's fair to say, partly because of his profession, what might be called a descriptivist. I mean, people people who work in dictionaries, they're trying to figure out how the language is really getting used uh, as opposed to how they think it should get used. Uh, I'm a little bit more of a prescriptivist. I think people should talk the way I want them to talk. Uh, and I don't know that that's exactly the knife's edge that I'm about to run my thumb down. But I do think, Peter, that you know, here we have a situation where, yes, so grooming has a meaning that it acquired, let's say, to your point in the 1980s, of uh, a a pedophile preparing uh, a child for subsequent sexual activity. Um, The thing is that Ingram and some of the other people who are slinging this word around, it's not clear that they mean that anymore. It's almost as though they're saying, if you introduce into the schools 
issues uh, of gender fluidity, issues uh, of just LBGTQ identity, you're, you're maybe preparing children for a different kind of life that they would necessarily. It's not clear to me what they're, that they're saying that Mickey Mouse wants to molest children or that third grade teachers are preparing their students in order to have sex with them. It's more like grooming in a much vaguer sense, like you're going to be kind of different. You're going to be a little bit more open to things that maybe some of us think you shouldn't be open to. Yeah, whatever it is, it's bad. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, so and, and they're, it's, they're using it as a paintbrush to paint others with. And of course, you're right. Yeah. So, well, I'm just going to record that and play it back all the time. But, um, um, but you know, that raises the question, Peter, just stay with this for a second, of the role of the dictionary, particularly because you guys are doing so much work in real time these days, so much work online. So I think you would still say that it's not the job of the dictionary to put up some guardrails around that word and say, well, that's not grooming. Just telling kids about certain things isn't grooming them. Grooming would be specifically, you know, what it meant in the 1980s. But but if you're a descriptivist, well, maybe that is what grooming means now because Laura Ingram and Ted Cruz say it all the time. Right. And so, you know, normally we're working on this entry and others. Uh, this is just sort of exploded into the, the public discourse. Again, a lot of people probably didn't know the term until recently. And just given the, the breakdown you just made, I would see two senses there. You know, mm-hmm. so uh, de- a dictionary definition uh, can you know split senses into two or more. And uh, one might be that sort of older one that I read from the Oxford English Dictionary, and one might be this broader one, which is this sort of epithet use, this sort of more an insult than a a precise, narrow accusation. All right. So let's try another one of these G words. And this this word will be gaslighting. So gaslighting, of course, comes from an old Charles Boyer picture. Uh, But... um, I'm going to have both of you talk about it a little bit. Maybe, Peter, you can set the stage here. This wasn't a term that really moved out of the movie Gaslight and into the common parlance in a very smooth way, right? It just sat there incubating in its nest for decades. Well, the linguist Ben Zimmer, our our, our good friend, I mean, he does trace back uh, the, the use in the sort of general sense of to deceive another person. Um, going back to the 50s, so shortly after that film mm-hmm. um, and the play. And so, uh, but it's come into kind of much wider use in much more recent times. Um, and it's an extraordinary journey, but it's a word that's kind of gone through, you might say, um, what we sometimes call kind of semantic bleaching. In other words, it originally meant this very specific psychological manipulation uh, over a, an extended period of time, you're, you're driving somebody crazy, right? Whereas now it just kind of means, you know, liar, liar, pants on fire. You, you know, it's it's a, it's a little bit of a of a of a broader uh, meaning in the way we see it on social media all the time. We're going to circle back to semantic bleaching in just a second. This sounds like something out of our. John Waters interview, but it's not. Um, so, uh, but yeah, I mean, Corey, to that point, though, let me just sort of make my own stupid observation and you can either exalt it or knock it down. And I'm, I'm not particularly invested either way. But it seems to me one thing that happens is sometimes people search for a word to describe a pervasive feeling, something that they're feeling and other people are feeling. And, and, and I saw, once again, sometimes driven by journalists, I'm thinking of Sarah Kenzior in particular, but we, we did a whole segment about gaslighting 
sometime during the Trump presidency. Because when you have, I mean, the, the notion from the movie is that the husband is trying to convince the wife that she's crazy by just constantly messing with her apprehension of reality and by feeding her, you know, things that aren't true and, and, and causing her to doubt her own perceptions. And I do feel as though maybe there were a lot of people between 2017 and the end of 2020 who were looking for a word for just a lot of stuff that was coming at them that seemed to be almost intentionally messing with their own understanding of the world world yeah i i would agree i also think that there's there's i don't know that i would say what's happening with gaslighting is semantic bleaching so much as it is it is a word that had a specific sort of psychological meaning and then i do think you're right people are looking for a thing to describe something that they are experiencing and gaslighting seems to fit it so there's this subtle shift in that gaslighting you know as taken from the movie really is about trying to convince someone that their perception is incorrect whereas now it seems to be a word that gets used when someone is calling out someone's attempt to do that right so so if I'm saying, uh, you know, it's raining outside today and you were to say, you know, ah, that's just fog, I could say, quit gaslighting me. I don't <laughs> think you're trying to make me insane or make me think I'm insane. But it, it focuses less on the impact that it has on the person being gaslit and more about the thing that is being debated now. So, so it's kind of a way of calling out uh, straight up lies. But you're right. This is how words move and how they change meanings and how they change connotations is people look for something that kind of feels right and they take it on. You know, gaslighting also is a weird term because it, as soon as it sort of came to prominence, it also ended up being used a lot in discourse around Me Too, discourse around uh, domestic violence, around feminism. And I honestly think that any time you take a word that's sort of more broadly applied and women start to use it to say, this is my experience, you have an automatic knee-jerk response against it. So, you know, I'm thinking of, uh, this was a while ago, but there was a New York Times writer uh, who had said, you know, stop using gaslighting, gaslighting doesn't exist. And it's kind of like, <laughs> well, if you have a bunch of people saying it exists and they are being gaslit, then does it not by definition exist? You don't, you maybe not don't like how they're using it, but that's a different thing. Well, there is, as you, I think, are implying at times a way in which gender can condition perception, a way in which sometimes this is sort of fought out a little bit between men and women. This is not a perfect parallel, but not too long ago. <laughs> By the way, trying to enforce any kind of lexicographic integrity on Twitter is the stupidest thing in the world you could do. But I, <laughs> I, I occasionally do it anyway, and I just was noticing somebody had, it was a woman, I hadn't even really picked that up, but had was asking people if there were TV shows that people didn't know too well, but that you, a specific person, were evangelistic, or, or excuse me, were evangelical about. Um, uh, and so I I just sort of type back, this is a small thing, but evangelical and evangelistic don't exactly mean the same thing, at which point I was immediately accused of mansplaining, <laughs> <laughs> which is another word that, you know, that didn't yep. exist uh, too, uh, too long ago. Yeah, Corey, what were you going to say? I was going to say, I think that, you know, 
this gets into issues of how do we interact on social media? What is what does discourse look like now in the modern age? And I, I think that, you know, I, I know that we'll be joined later by another guest who has a lot to say about that. So I don't want to say too much, but but I do think that, you know, one of the ways that as lexicographers, we track the evolution of language. And one of the ways that actually the internet makes it both great and really difficult is you can watch these things happening again in real time, which we never had the opportunity to do beforehand. But that means that you can't just say, oh, person X said this and person Y said this. So we're at person Y's idea. It is a constant back and forth. You know, language is like clay. You can't just throw it on the wheel and stick your hands in once and say, there's a bowl. You really have to work it over and over and over again. And as lexicographers, that means we watch a lot of this and we just have to sit back and wait until meanings settle out enough that we can sort of grasp them in our hands, take them off the wheel, put them in the kiln, you know, but until then, it's not as if that word doesn't have a meaning. It's just that we as a group are trying to figure out what the most common denominator meaning is. And that's always the worst part of language change. Well, that was a lovely extended metaphor, which, by the way, is no longer one of the top 10 words being searched for right now, although that <laughs> metaphor was earlier on that list today. So so just to go back to something you said earlier, Peter, well, I, one could say that it might have felt to some people like gaslighting when the president of the United States stood before the nation at a briefing and suggested that it might be a good idea during a pandemic to inject bleach into your uh, your veins. But that's not what semantic bleaching refers to at all. Uh, so but since since it came up, you should explain what it is. Well, the, the question is, did he mean it literally? <laughs> there we go. <laughs> um, and so, uh, yeah, semantic bleaching is basically, it, words carry meaning. They often carry meaning. They usually carry meaning. There are function words and, and, and you know, prepositions and things that don't always carry meaning. They help the meaning of other words. But if I said, did he mean it literally? That means, did he mean literally putting liquid bleach into a, you know, <laughs> into a person? Um, that's one thing. But we also use the word literally in a, in, a, in a hyperbolic way. I could say, I literally died laughing. And you'd understand exactly that I meant something was making me laugh very hard, but that I was in no danger of, you know, of expiring. And so that's hyperbole. And what happens is, in that case, the words that are carrying meaning, which is to say, died laughing, um, are understood to be a kind of a joke or a hyperbole and literally is just, in this case, an intensifier. And once you make a word an intensifier, then it's no longer carrying the, the weight that it did in, in its you know, normal initial use. And so if that happens frequently, then um, it, it actually takes on a, a new sense for the word. And, and, and this happens, like literally is one that people notice. But it happens more frequently than you might think. I mean, think of the word incredible. If we use the same kind of etymological justice, then incredible means not believable, right? And But you could say he's an incredible basketball player and you could really mean it quite that way. But you could also say um, this ice cream is incredible. And well, it, it's perfectly believable that it's very good ice cream. And that's the way that language works. It slowly sort of slowly changes meaning and um, becomes, in this case, an intensifier rather than um, carrying the, the original or etymological meaning of the word. Right. I mean, the weird thing about literally is it almost gets inverted. Yeah. Uh, you know, it, 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 it winds up meaning figuratively, which is, you know, it's antithesis or, or nearly. All right. We have to take a quick break here. As you can tell, all three of us uh, could talk about all this stuff at great length. And we will continue to do that when we come back. Listen to the words I say. 
Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. Loneliness can be a significant health risk to people of all ages. Dr. Laura Saunders, a psychologist from Hartford HealthCare's Institute of Living, talks about social isolation and why we need to connect in person. Loneliness actually is a pretty significant health risk for people that struggle with social isolation. It affects their blood pressure, it affects their immune system, it affects your willingness to get up and get out and can cause some not just emotional issues, but health problems as well. You're not alone. Dr. Saunders explains how important it is for us to look to others and get out of our comfort zone. I like to talk about social isolation as not just that individual's problem, but it's a community problem or it's a family problem. We need to connect with others. We can take space at times as well, but we need to step out of our comfort zone and do things to connect with other people. It's life-saving. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash elevating health. Ms. Ostrovsky, your word is boanthropy. Oh, wait, one second, please. Ma'am, could you not sit in that seat? I saved a chair for my dad in the fourth row on the aisle. And it may take him a while, but when he gets here, that's his chair. Cause my mother's in an ashram in India. I saved a chair for her too, but it's merely symbolic as daily she washes herself in the Ganges. And I live in a house where there's an oversized dictionary that I read as a girl on the toilet. I love my dictionary and I love the indented border. Every word's in alphabetical. So we have uh, two people with us today who are very familiar with dictionaries and love their dictionaries. Uh, Peter Sokolowski, editor-at-large, Merriam-Webster, Corey Stamper, lexicographer and author of Word by Word, The Secret Life of Dictionaries. So, so much to talk about here. You know, one thing I think that's kind of interesting to talk about is where words come from uh, if they bleed into public discourse. Uh, and, and Peter, one place that they come from sometimes is academia, right? There's, there's a way in which, well, James Carville says that this is uh, faculty lounge talk that he, he doesn't think is particularly helpful. He says terms like Latinx uh, and communities of color uh, come up in, in, in academic speech uh, and, and nobody actually says them in real life. He's constantly exhorting politicians to stop speaking Hebrew and start speaking Yiddish, uh, which is to say talk the way people really talk. But like one word, one word for that, uh, one word that's like that, Peter, is intersectionality, which I think arose or, or came into play anyway during the Black Lives Matter protests. Once again, it had been around for a while, but just in the faculty lounges, as Carville would say. Well, yes, and it's just, it shows, I mean, even a word like deconstruction is a word that is much broadly, much more broadly used today than it was, <laughs> you know, in the in the 1970s, say, when, you know, Jacques Derrida and Paul Demand were at, were at Yale. <laughs> um, uh, and, uh, of course, it, it's used in the public 
discourse is not always as sort of narrow or precise. Um, and some words, it's funny that he said Hebrew and Yiddish. That, that, that's, that's really interesting because I think in English, we always we often say if someone's using big words, we'll say speak English, you know. Um, and there's a there, there's a sense in which I think p politicians have always known that. In other words, English has the kind of caste system. A lot of words are like intersectionality are derived from Latin if they come uh, from uh, a bureaucratic or, or an institutional or a religious or an academic uh, or legal or medical um, setting. And yet think of some of the great speeches. Um, we will fight them on the beaches. We will fight them on the landing grounds. Every single word is from Old English. Ask not what you can do for your country. Um, we, uh, we have nothing to fear but fear itself. Every single one of those words, except for country, which is kind of an asterisk. It's from French, but it sounds English. Um, and it's interesting that somehow a great rhetoricians seem to know this intuitively, which is to communicate with emotion and connect, um, which includes, yes, we can, and also includes make America great again. I mean, they're, they're all the old English words. They're not the um, abstract or emotionally distant Latin words. Um, and so what, I, what Carville was saying was the same kind of uh, recommendation that George Orwell makes and that uh, Winston Churchill and FDR and JFK all apply uh, in their own speeches. Yeah, Orwell in Politics in the English Language talks about that and, and says that when you start to hear different kinds of words, you know uh, or that there's a very good chance that something, uh, some abomination is being concealed. Uh, he says defenseless villages are bombarded from the air. Uh, this, is, this is called pacification, uh, you know, transfer of population or rectification of frontiers. It always means like something really horrible is happening that they don't want to talk about it. We've done it more contemporarily with collateral damage, uh, you know, things like that. And, and Corey, this raises a real question, too, for the lexicographer, because in theory, just to go back to what we said at the beginning, the lexicographer, the, 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 the person who works on dictionaries, is, to use a John Robertsism, somebody just call, calling balls and strikes, right? You're not supposed to really necessarily have an agenda, and if you do, you should get rid of it. But how possible is that? You know, I was raised in the uh, lexicographical tradition that dictionaries are wholly subjective records of the English language, and over the course of 25 years of doing this, I actually think it's kind of impossible to have an objective record of the English language, period. You know, we all come to whatever work we do, whether it's writing dictionaries or making pizzas, with our own set of biases, our own opinions. And, and while good lexicographical training helps you see that, it, it is the water you swim in. It is just a thing that you have to contend with, that even what you have in front of you, you know, when we talk about writing definitions, people have this vision in their head that like we go into a smoky boardroom and bat around definitions for meanings. It's just not what happens. You, you basically sort of troll the written record for as much information, as many uses of a word as possible. And then you analyze those. But even in the process of doing that, you can't get all of English. You're going to privilege written communications over spoken communications, which is actually kind of where language grows and blooms and flourishes. And you're also deciding which things to include in a definition and which things not to include. So, so what gets really tricky, right, with some of these sort of politically fraught things is how much of your role as a descriptivist has to include a little bit of guidance. Um, so for instance, we were talking earlier about the word grooming and 
and how, you know, it started with a very, very specific sort of sociological, psychological meaning regarding how predators uh, find and sort of gain the trust of victims. And, you know, it now is used in a very broad derogatory sense. Well, I, as a lexicographer, right now, for instance, I'm working on a dictionary for uh, adults who are learning English as a foreign language, which means that they're not going to have the same cultural background that lots of us do when we hear someone like Laura, you know, Ingraham or Ted Cruz or whoever call someone a groomer. They don't quite understand what that means. Do I then want them to go to the dictionary and get this very clinical and incredibly sort of dense and fraught definition and think, oh, that's what that word means. So this gets really tense because I don't think you can ever be fully subjective. I don't think you can ever be fully comprehensive in how you define a word. But I do think particularly as dictionaries move online and as people interact with them more and as lexicographers move online and interact more, I do think that we need to rethink how we style dictionary definitions, what kind of information we include, and maybe we include usage notes or things that say this is used in a derogatory manner or this is used as a generalized uh, denigrating term, something like that. So, you know, just as just as online discourse is changing, so is lexicography. Peter, could you just go ahead and respond to that? Oh, I agree a thousand percent. I mean, of course, I think to some extent this prescriptive versus descriptive argument is a straw man argument because the function of the dictionary is clearly prescriptive. It's obviously there to call balls and strikes for spelling. I love that song about the spelling bee. Obviously, that's the role, but the research is descriptive. So do you see what I'm saying? The two sides of a coin, um, a word like irregardless, which everybody loves to hate, but there's evidence of it in print. So there's reason by a strict descriptivist de definition to put it into the dictionary. And we can we have to put it there. There's the spelling. There's the meaning. However, there's another kind of information, which is cultural that the dictionary can give, which we call usage notes, just like Corey said. And so those are there to, first of all, uh, keep you from offending others. And second of all, to keep you from embarrassing yourself. And I think that's a really important role for the dictionary too. But I, it's it's clear that the dictionary's role is, uh, it, it's a paradoxical one. We, we want it to be sort of timeless uh, and permanent, and yet it, it's got to be up to date or it's invalid. Right. I, I'm, I'm charmed by the fact that you think people are capable of embarrassment anymore. Uh, <laughs> I think it's a, a pretty quaint notion at this point. Uh, but we have to take a little break here. Uh, as Corey was mentioning, we do have somebody uh, who's going to join us. We're going to talk very specifically about the language of the Internet or what language, what happens to language on the Internet. Irony is not coincidence. And I thought that you'd gotten it through your skull. But what's figurative and what's literal? But just now, just now you, said, you said you literally couldn't get out of bed. We are back and uh, time to see some thank yous, especially to Cat Pastor, our technical producer, and most especially to our senior producer, Lily Tyson. Ooh. It's always a mistake to try to produce a show that I have a lot of passion about because then you have to deal with me for days on end. 
And so I've been driving Lily, I think, slightly crazy for the last 48 hours. Uh, so we're talking about words uh, today with Peter Sokolowski, editor-at-large at, at Merriam-Webster, public radio jazz host at New England Public Media, co-host of the Word Matters podcast, Corey Stamper, lexicographer, author of Word by Word, The Secret Life of Dictionaries, and now joining us, Sil- uh, Sylvia Sierra, uh, linguist uh, and assistant professor of communication and rhetorical studies at Syracuse University. Also the author of the book, Millennials Talking Media, Creating Intertextual Identities in Everyday Conversation. So um, first of all, uh, welcome Sylvia Sierra. Uh, And if you were listening earlier, I'm keeping an eye for the entire show on Peter's site, the Merriam-Webster site, where they have this constantly refreshing list of words that are being looked up. And so GAF is still number one. Uh, but uh, and, and neurasthenia is number four with a bullet. Neurasthenia is having a, just a great day. Uh, but a few minutes ago, LOL was on the, on the list, which will get maybe right into some of the stuff that we're going to talk about. But Sylvia Sierra, I thought maybe we could begin with the word meme because it's actually something that I'm also somewhat passionate about. And I spent the entire spring using the word meme and saying to my students, no, not that kind of meme, the other kind of meme. So, but explain why there's other kinds of memes. Yeah, so um, meme used to mean something much broader than what I think is what people usually mean by it now. So uh, Richard Dawkins, you know, coined the term meme uh, in his 1976 book, The Selfish Gene. Um, And it was very broad, as I said, it could be any kind of like replicating cultural unit. So this could be like a fashion trend or maybe an architectural style. Um, But he also did mention things like catchphrases um, being memes. And that kind of translates, I think, into the Internet usage of memes. So more recently, when people talk about memes, they're typically thinking about Internet memes. um, And sort of classically, this might have been like an image with with some text on it. And then maybe that would go through different permutations um, or it would just be shared that way. Um, But it can be. A lot of different things, like even, you know, like GIFs or GIFs, however you might pronounce that, um, that could also be seen as a kind of meme, Um, you know, even just certain words or phrases. So it's a very, I guess, flexible concept. But yeah, that's kind of generally how it's changed to mean something a little more specific in the Internet age. Yeah, I feel bad about that, too. Yeah. So just if people are having trouble uh, picturing this, just for example, there's um, there's a meme or sort of a a starter meme that's, uh, I think, a, a guy walking with who is somebody who's apparently his girlfriend, but he's looking back at a different young woman. Uh, and then all kinds of words get overlaid onto that to make some kind of point or to compare it to some uh, other situation. But I thought Dawkins's coinage was so useful. I mean, it was sort of, he was basically making the argument that a unit of information that we, we could call a meme had a quote unquote interest in being passed along, being uh, an interest in surviving, uh, and that things would become successful in that way if, in fact, they had some sp- very specific utility. Uh, and it was just a great way to look at little hunks of information and to talk about them. Uh, and then it got turned into something completely completely <laughs> different. I think that old meaning is being lost. But we should also talk a little bit about, uh, and, and this is one I'm sure uh, that Peter and Corey would want to wave uh, in on too, uh, a w- the way in which a-, a term like fake news Uh, first of all, isn't as new a term as you might think and has been stood on its head in the matter of four or five years. But but Sylvia, get us started on this. Sure. Um, Well, so the people that work on dictionaries and lexicographers might know a little bit more about, you know, whether it was used prior to, let's say, 2016 and the U.S. election. 
Um, but the, I think that's sort of when it grabbed everyone's attention. Um, and initially, it was actually used to describe um, misinformation about the election coming from like Russia or maybe some former Soviet satellite uh, states. And it was, you know, mostly used by maybe like the mainstream uh, media to talk about disinformation online around the election. And then what happened is uh, the former president co-opted that term uh, once he was elected and he started just using that term fake news to refer to any media that he uh, perceived as unfavorable to him. Um, and it really took off then and became almost like his catchphrase and something that he really used to kind of connect with his voters and to just dismiss any media that he didn't think was favorable to him. And it kind of got reappropriated and um, and used in a totally different way. <laughs> yeah. And this is an idea that you gave us, although I'm going to take a step further. I think we could call this the Inigo Montoya effect. <laughs> he didn't fall. Inconceivable! You keep using the word. I don't think it means what you think it means. So there's a lot of that that goes on in life. I, I just would point out that and I had to do some research on this a while back for some lectures I was giving. Um, fake news started to be slung around as a term in the late 19th century. In particular, it seemed to involve William Jennings Bryan, who oddly enough had lost an election and was continuing to cause trouble for McKinley, the person who'd won the election. And you, so you come up with things like there seems to be an epidemic of fake news from the city of Lincoln, Nebraska, and it all comes from Mr. Bryan's friends names not given, uh, Brian's newspaper, The Commoner, wrote in 1907. Uh, but that term fake news is being slung around uh, even back then. So um, so our time is somewhat limited, but I think it is sort of interesting to talk about how our interactions with machines uh, change the way that we think and talk and write. So, Peter, I, I mentioned that LOL had popped up on uh, on your Billboard Hot 100 a, a little while ago and then fallen off. You'd think that LOL would pretty be a pretty well-resolved and understood term, but we don't know why people are looking it up. But it's an example of terms that have come into use because people are communicating on a completely different set of devices. Well, absolutely. I mean, and, and especially with informal language, it used to be that that was the kind of language that was spoken and not written, not published, and therefore took a long time to get into the dictionary for the simple reason that that that, that gold standard that Corey mentioned before, this privileging of the written word uh, in the documents that are used for research for a dictionary, um, we sim simply wouldn't have the jargon or the slang of of this uh, of of any uh, group of people. Uh, but now we have this paradox where the informal language is often written before it's ever spoken. So that's why we have problems like whether it's GIF or GIF, <laughs> um, or you say LOL or LOL, for example. And that does mean again that we have lots of evidence of this use, and therefore goes into the dictionary. This is the kind of thing that I think some people look up in the dictionary just to see if it's in the dictionary. Right. And I think there are also ways in which words uh, kind of, I don't know whether they cause social bonding or reinforce social bonding or reflect social bonding. But for example, Sylvia, you know, I mean, I don't know, all of my students know exactly what is meant when someone whose name is not actually Karen is referred to as a Karen. <laughs> But that strikes me as one of those words that's sort of a way of sort of saying, I belong to a certain group and we call certain kinds of people Karen. Yeah, definitely. Um, 
I mean, it also makes me think of the term boomer and how now that's used, you know, in a derogatory way a lot of the time by younger generations. So, I mean, what you said is exactly right. These words are often used to bond people together as a social group, whether that's like creating a new bond or reinforcing an old one. Um, that's definitely how a lot of these um, newer online terms or terms that maybe get popularized through online usage function, um, you know, you have to be part of an in-group to really um, get the subtle meaning of these words and, and who is included and excluded by it. And that's actually really clear with the case of like a Karen, because, you know, you're excluding people who you might identify as Karens. Um, and uh, yeah, so it, it's definitely like an in-group bonding mechanism. Although you wonder, like, Corey, you wonder how stable any of that is, because as we've already talked about a couple of times, these things can be turned on their heads. And so a Karen, I think, initially might have come up uh, in application to, for example, the woman who called the cops about the black guy who was bird watching in Central Park. That would be sort of a classic Karen activity. But I think increasingly, uh, particularly because sort of the the, the information engines uh, of conservative and right-wing political discourse are very good at latching on to terms like fake news uh, or Karen and turning them around and calling AOC a, a Karen, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I, again, this gets into the war of words. And and now, we, you know, you have to also factor in the uh, all-seeing algorithm and how the all-seeing algorithm is going to, to handle your words. You know, I'm thinking specifically of I, I most of the younger people I know don't call covid the pandemic. They call it the panini or the pando or the, you know, the Panera or whatever. And that's in part because they're all on TikTok. And for a while, TikTok would get everybody who mentioned COVID-19. They downrate it because they're trying to limit misinformation. So, yeah, I mean, these things come and go. Language is by its nature really fluid and it is really changeable. If language isn't changing, it's dead. So it does get tricky then for lexicographers, people like me who have to say, what does this word mean right now and put it in print? That's really difficult to do. But I also think this is just, this is how language has always been. And we're just confronted with a brand new way of of absorbing and watching that language change happen. Right. I mean, in a wonderful way, the kind of thing that you're talking about, immediately there's a need for a word to describe it. So the, the new word, the new coinage is algospeak. Algospeak is that, yeah. that exact thing of choosing a slightly different word uh, and substituting it for something that could cause your post to be downranked. So if they're downranking everything that has to do with sex, you write S-E-G-G-S <laughs> instead of sex. Right. Uh, and, right. and that's algo speak, which is also part of what's called, I think, Aesopian languages, languages that have their own kind of hidden codes mm -hmm. so that people who are, to, to Sylvia's point, part of the in-group uh, will know what they mean and maybe maybe the bot won't. Although the, the bots are getting, or the algorithms are getting really good and saying, oh, I, I, we know what that word is. That's when you're trying not to get downranked. So, you know, uh, Sylvia, in t to that to the point that we're talking about, too, there's a way in which uh, and we only have about a minute left, unfortunately. There's a way in which th th this is supposed to work. Well, I'll give you an example. Okay, so millennials and Gen Zers, you know, they might use a term like "girl boss," uh, and, and that is something that they want to use among themselves. They're not really particularly interested in some creepy old guy who teaches a you know, uh, a political science course using "girl boss." The whole point is to have your own language. 
Yeah, totally. Um, I mean, that's always been the case for, um, well, especially groups that, you know, are minoritized in some sense, um, that they want to use sort of a language that is almost a code from people that have more power and that could maybe use that against them. Um, but, you know, to your point about girl boss, I would say that one has also changed meaning. And now like we, uh, me and other people I know would only use that ironically. We would never use that word seriously. Well, we, we literally have to go. Uh, so <laughs> thanks very much to all three of you. Wonderful, wonderful conversation. Thanks for being with us. With someone you adore, if you should find romance.